And today we are joined by Dr. Katherine Tuttle. She is Executive Director for Research at Providence Healthcare and Co-Principal Investigator of the Institute of Translational Health Sciences and Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington. Dr. Tuttle earned her medical degree and completed residency in internal medicine at Northwestern University, then went on to do her fellowship in metabolism and endocrinology at Washington University in St. Louis, before also completing nephrology fellowship at the University of Texas, San Antonio. Dr. Tuttle's major research interests are in diabetes and chronic kidney disease. She has published over 300 peer-reviewed articles and served as associate editor for the Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology, as well as the American Journal of Kidney Disease. Dr. Tuttle has received numerous honors and awards, including the Medal of Excellence from the American Association of Kidney Patients and two outstanding clinical faculty awards at the University of Washington. Dr. Tuttle served on the board of directors for the Kidney Health Initiative and has chaired numerous other working groups and committees for organizations, including the International Society of Nephrology and the American Diabetes Association. She is currently chair of the Diabetic Kidney Disease Collaborative Task Force <coughs> for the American Society of Nephrology. We are so tremendously grateful for your breadth of work in this field and for your generosity in coming to teach us today. Thank you, Dr. Tuttle. Well, thank you very much. It's really my honor to be here with you today and really at such an exciting time for people with diabetes. So I've been very intentional in titling this lecture, Kidney and Heart Health, Not Disease, in patients with diabetes and CKD, because we really are at a moment in medicine. Um, I will present some of the new data on these really transformative therapies, but maybe to benchmark this for you, I have had the privilege to uh, write and speak with uh, Professor Eugene Braunwald, who, by the way, in his 90s is still uh, very engaged. And Dr. Braunwald said, this is the biggest thing in medicine that's happened since statin. So I just wanna set the stage for you. It's not just nephrology, it's not just endocrinology, it's not just cardiology, it's all of us in medicine. And this really is an exciting time to give this lecture. So these are my disclosures. They're all related to therapies for diabetes and kidney disease and are paid to the institution, not me personally. So our goals today will be by the end of the presentation, you will understand the scale, risks, and mechanisms of chronic kidney disease and diabetes, recognize the evidence for new guideline-directed medical therapies, and comprehend the importance of education and collaborative care to implement therapies for diabetes and CKD. So let's first talk about the enormity of the problem, especially in honor of this Rosenfeld lectureship. There are 537 million people with diabetes worldwide. These are 2021 uh, estimates that were published in 2022. So this is very contemporary. 95% of the people have type two diabetes and about 5%, but still a large number of people with type one. Even today, 40% uh, of those with type two and 30% of people with type 1 will develop kidney disease, making this responsible for half of all chronic kidney disease worldwide, the most common cause of kidney failure in the world. 
Now, while our traditional focus has been that kidney disease progresses to kidney failure, we now recognize that only 10% of people ever reach this end point. And it's not because they're doing well, it's because of the tremendous competing risk of cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular mortality. And in the spirit of trying to get to the heart of this lecture, uh, I won't show you the specific data, but some years back we published data out of NHANES that showed that almost all the excess cardiovascular risk in people with diabetes is in those who have albuminuria, low GFR, both the definition of CKD. And in fact, if both of those conditions are present, the risk is increased 30 times that of a non-diabetic person without CKD. And it's not just atherosclerotic disease, particularly at the later stages of kidney disease, it's heart failure and cardiovascular deaths due to arrhythmias. So 90% of people will die. So the take home message is the road to kidney failure is littered with deaths. And you know, if you benchmark this, let's say against another highly fatal disease, this is on par with the new diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer. In fact, the death rates are about 20% per year. So I'm now gonna show you some data that we just published in the New England Journal uh, about four months ago, and it includes data from Providence Healthcare. This including your patients are part of this large registry that we have from our electronic health records. It's a collaboration with UCLA Health. And what we did is in a contemporary time period, we looked at patients uh, who had diabetes, but no chronic kidney disease. And we used very rigorous definitions. It wasn't just administrative codes. They had to have a normal G GFR and a no normal albuminuria level within one year of uh, starting the baseline period. And first off, if you look uh, on the right panel, we looked at this by race and ethnicity. Also because we have a large healthcare system, um, Providence is actually 90% of this registry, to be honest with you. UCLA is large, but it's only about 10% of the registry. So most of these are our patients at Providence. What you can see is that compared to the white reference group, all non-white groups, with the exception of uh, people who identify as Asian have significantly higher risks of developing incident CKD, which is new onset CKD, because in addition to prevalence estimates, what I showed you on the last slide was how many people have the disease, but what we haven't known before, and the reason this made it into the New England, is we haven't had good estimates of where it starts. Who gets it, and what are the starting rates? So it turns out, as you might expect, this is a disease where there are huge disparities. And actually, because the data set is so large, we also had the opportunity to look at rates in groups that have been hard to identify in smaller data sets. So for example, the highest risk, 60% higher risk of kidney disease in native Hawaiian or Pacific Islanders, whereas it's about a 40% increased risk in people who identify as black or African-American. About 25% of those who are Hispanic or Latinx ethnicity and American Indian Alaska natives are have an increased rate of about 33%. So this begins to help us understand who the high risk populations are that we want to target for some of the screening and interventions that I'll speak of. We also showed in that paper time trends in two year consecutive periods between 2015 and 2020 uh, overall and by age, uh, race and ethnicity and sex. And um, as you can see here, over the age of 60, uh, the rates are very, very high. But during this time period, thankfully, some of these new therapies were being implemented and we see a favorable trend downward. But if you look here, this red line is 7%. So that is 
7% per year uh, adds up very quickly. And um, again, even though the rates are decreasing across race and ethnicities and across men and women, men, non-white race, and people over 60 still have rates over 7% per year. So do the math. That is, by five years, more than a third of these people have kidney disease. And remember what happens when they get kidney disease. They're on the road to death or dialysis. It's very serious, and I think we failed to recognize the mortality risk of this condition. So I also want to talk about some terminology because there's uh, been, we, we, we actually have very specific terminology now. And for example, we don't use old terms that you might have heard early in your career like chronic renal insufficiency. I don't even know what that is. Uh, but you probably learned about diabetic kidney disease as diabetic nephropathy. But then you'll see us use the term diabetic kidney disease or chronic kidney disease and diabetes. So as before I go into the guidelines and the trials, I want to be clear what we're talking about. So when you learned about complications of diabetes, you probably had this presented to you as diabetic nephropathy. And that uh, was the traditional classification based on the glomerular lesions. And I'll show you some pictures of those, the old Kimmelstall-Wilson lesions that you learned about. But we now recognize by doing a lot more studies that the diabetes affects other parts of the kidney, not just the glomeruli. And the tubular interstitial area is actually very, very important. And so we expanded the definition to really be diabetic kidney disease when kidney disease is attributed to diabetes because many people have multiple lesions. And this is important in terms of, again, targeting some of these therapies. And what is chronic kidney disease and diabetes? Well, this is how most people enter the trials because they have a clinical diagnosis of albuminuria, low GFR, or both, but we don't usually know the cause, although we assume it's due to diabetes. Again, what we find in biopsy studies is about a third of people have something else, but you're gonna find out for a lot of these therapies, it doesn't matter. Now, here's what we're talking about. These are the glomerular lesions of diabetes. This is from a paper we also recently published, um, just describing what these definitions mean. So these are the classic Kimmel-Steele-Wilson nodules, these big knots of fibrosis or scarring in the kidney. This is just an electron microscope, uh, a, a big uh, of, of these lesions uh, that are uh, blown up in a high uh, resolution image. But what we now know is that there's a lot more disease in the kidney than just the glomerular lesions. So uh, panel A for your reference would be normal tubules, but in diabetes, we see thickening of the basement membranes. They're separated. We see a lot of small vessel diseases, this is arteriolar thickening. We see droplets in the tubules. So we've now come to understand that this is a much more complex disease than just glomerular disease. So how, do we, how does it start? And again, I'm not going to belabor these mechanisms, except to say that it starts with metabolic disturbances, not only hyperglycemia, but high protein diet, obesity, hypertension, people of African heritage who have APOL1 genotypes. And all of these contribute to metabolic disturbances, hemodynamic disturbances, that is high pressure in the glomerulus, and some direct ways in which uh, in diabetes, inflammation and fibrosis are directly activated, for example, through advanced glycation end products. But all of them culminate in formation of the fibrosis and inflammation that you saw in those pictures that lead to kidney damage and onset, kidney damage onset and progression. So remember, structure begets function. So those structural lesions are what we'll be targeting with our therapies. 
So now I'm going to pivot to what are the new therapies with that sort of background of what we're, the disease we're really trying to treat and the importance of treating this disease. So um, the International Guideline Forming Organization for Kidney Disease is called KDGO. And uh, we fortunately have an international guideline group for this condition, but I would also remind you that we have guidelines that come out of the American Diabetes Association that are going to touch on this issue. Also with regard to the cardiovascular risk from the American College of Cardiology and American Heart. And so KDGO actually has harmonized their guidelines with these other groups so that the current guidelines that you're going to see for heart failure, for ASCBD, and for diabetes from the ADA are aligned on these uh, recommendations for kidney and cardiovascular disease. So of course, always there's a foundation of healthy lifestyle. Even in people who have complications, it makes a difference. But now what we recognize is that first-line drug therapy for people who have diabetes and CKD now, irrespective of cause, is that SGLT2 inhibitors are first-line therapy. And they're first-line therapy not for glycemia, but for heart and kidney protection. And I'll show you the main evidence for that. And I'll show you why we think it works that way. Uh, metformin can be given, but it doesn't have to be given as first-line therapy anymore. And actually, at the same time we published these guidelines, we published a separate paper in Diabetes Care, which is a consensus statement co-authored by all of us on both committees. Uh, so clearly stating that the ADA is uh, in line with this now. And this is the first time ever that they have not recommended metformin as a as first-line therapy with, 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 without it other things added on. So the SGLT2s are now elevated to frontline therapy as long as the GFR is above 20. And of course, our traditional standard of care in ACE inhibitor or ARB and statins for cardiovascular risk. But one of the things, and I'll show you from the Providence data that doesn't happen often enough, is risk factor reassessment. So it's not just glycemia and blood pressure now, it's albuminuria, because albuminuria is going to drive treatment decisions. So after initiating one of these therapies, they should be rechecked in three to six months. And if they have persistent albuminuria, for example, we'll be adding a drug called phenarinone, a non-steroidal mineralocorticoid antagonist. I'll show you the evidence for that and a GLP-1 receptor agonist if they need additional glucose lowering or if needed for ASCVD, and then other additional therapies down the line. So what's new is in the ellipse there. So let's now talk about how we got there and try to reinforce some of these messages. So prior to the advent of the SGLT2 inhibitors, phenarinone and the GLP-1 receptor agonists, the last time we had a new therapy was over 20 years ago in 2001. These were the big ACE-ARB trials. The last two trials were angiotensin receptor blockers in type 2 diabetes, Renal with Losartan, and IDNT with Herbisartan. And we heralded these studies, and I'm old enough that I was involved in these studies too. Uh, actually, we, we, were, uh, we did IDNT, not Renal at our site. But in any case, um, what you can see is that the risk reduction for these kidney disease endpoints was you know, relative risk reductions were 16 to 20%. And at the time we were really excited about that, but even though the scales are slightly different, 
on the on the on the um, survival curves for the two uh, studies, the absolute residual risk was still over 40%. And the only outcome that was affected were the kidney disease outcomes. There was no impact on mortality. And this is important because it's a real distinction from the new therapies. But this is the best we had. And that's probably why people just sort of yawned and said there's not much we can do, but it's completely changed. And what changed was the cardiovascular outcome trials. So for those of you who follow the diabetes field, you'll know that in 2008, the FDA mandated that if a new drug came on the market for glucose lowering, it had to be studied for cardiovascular safety. And this was because of the rosiglitazone debacle. It got approved for glucose lowering, but after it was on the market, there were a number of post-market approval reports to the FDA of myocardial infarctions in particular. So the FDA made a regulatory decision that if new glucose lowering drugs were approved, that the sponsors had to do a long-term cardiovascular outcome trial to prove safety in order to stay on the market because they took Rosie off the market for that reason. So these trials really though were the gift that kept on giving. And now I'll show you there's an abundance of trials. So I'm gonna show you the high level uh, data that drive the guidelines and how this world has completely changed in the past five years. So not only were the SGLT2 inhibitors safe, they were actually effective. And the people who designed the trials were highly prescient in the sense that to prove safety, what you have to prove is non-inferiority. It just basically says an SGLT2 inhibitor is not worse than the standard of care placebo or metformin uh, in terms of cardiovascular safety. But from a trial design standpoint, if you pre-specify that you can go on after you prove inferiority to test for superiority, which means better than, uh, then you can actually uh, prove superiority. So it's a very rigorous trial design. And honestly, I, I mean, there was no reason to think these agents were going to a priori be so effective, but it was very smart because these agents have delivered in an enormous way. This is really now the number, this is first line therapy for heart failure. ASCBD, there's some benefit, but the real wins are on CBD death and heart failure. But the other thing that they were really smart about doing was the major secondary outcomes were related to kidney disease and across the class. They decrease albuminuria, GFR decline, and kidney failure. And the kidney and cardiovascular benefits are present even in the super high-risk group with pre-existing CKD. Okay, so this is what's happened in the field. The last trial that will be done reported out in November of 2022, kidney. the heart failure trials are now done. All the ASCVD trials are done, and no one's going to keep doing these anymore. Sure, we'll do lots of subgroup analysis, but here's all the trials. They've now been done in people with and without diabetes, with and without heart failure, with and without CKD, with and without ASCVD. And here's the bottom line. The relative risk reduction is 40%. It is more than double what we saw with ACEs and ARBs. And these were on the background of ACEs and ARBs. They were already treated. Here is the effect on acute kidney injury. There were ideas that these drugs might increase risk. There's a 25% reduction in AKI events. Here are the heart failure outcomes. 23% risk reduction. And everybody was getting optimal medical therapy here. And cardiovascular death and all-cause mortality driven by reduction in cardiovascular death. So this is a real win in people who have a death rate of nearly 20% per year. 
stay alive, less heart failure, less kidney failure. Now that's why we can begin to talk about health rather than disease and failure. How might the magic be happening? Well, again, I'm going to walk you back to a little bit of science. Remember I said that hemodynamic disturbances drive the kidney injury. So remember, you also probably learned when you were studying diabetes that in the early state, there's actually a state of glomerular hyperfiltration higher than normal GFR. And that's because the inflowing or afferent arterial is dilated relative to the efferent or outflowing <coughs> artery that's constricted. So the glomerulus is engorged. And at least in experimental animals, this capillary circuit should have a pressure about 44 millimeters of mercury. In diabetes, it's 80. So what happens is in this very delicate capillary circuit, this even local hyperfiltration is a major mechanism of damage. And in diabetes, then there's also increased filtration of glucose. And in the proximal convoluted tubule, these little uh, blue triangles are SGLT2 transporters. And this is an adaptive transport system that increases in number and activity as a way to reclaim glucose that's been lost. But the consequence of that is less solute delivery downstream because it's also sodium chloride requiring process. And then the distal nephron, the distal convoluted tubule, specialized segment macula densa. When sodium is reabsorbed, it generates, it requires energy in the form of ATP and generates adenosine, but adenosine is not a waste product. It's a very active paracrine hormone that jumps next door and is a vasoconstrictor at the afferent or inflowing arterial. So it clamps down the glomerulus. And in the absence of this, you have unfettered hyperperfusion. The ACEs or ARBs work downstream and dilate the efferent arterial, but we had left this artery upstream unprotected. So when we give an SGLT2 inhibitor and block these little uh, blue triangles, we increase solute delivery and we restore, to, this is called tubuloglomerular feedback, and we clamp down the inflowing arteries. So we've really taken care of hyperfiltration. So what might that mean for the heart? Because actually SGLT2 transporters are only found in the kidney. It was very intentional in drug development to not have off-target effects. So it's really, again, it really shows you the dance between the heart and the kidney. These are kidney effects driving the benefit on heart failure. And what happens is, I've just described to you the intraglomerular process, is that at the systemic circulation, there's a reduction in plasma volume because there's a diuresis. There's actually a feedback circuit that reduces sympathetic neural output. And actually, these changes also increase erythropoietin production and then, of course, reduce glycemia body weight and increase free fatty acids, as we expect they do based on the metabolic profile. But this then leads to lower blood pressure, a higher red cell mass, and a mild but protective ketosis because the heart likes beta-hydroxybutyrate as a fuel. There's less ventricular wall stress, increased oxygen delivery, and decreases in oxidative stress and something, a transporter in the heart that's indirectly affected through these mediators such that cardiac function then improves. And then what happens when the heart improves, kidney function improves. There's increased perfusion and not hyperperfusion, but a normal, a much more normal circuit between the heart and the kidney. So it really is a very, very fascinating bit of physiology that we just stumbled on serendipitously. With regard to the GLP-1s, what do we know about those agents? So they were studied in exactly the same format for cardiovascular safety, but they also delivered in a huge way. Not only were they safe, they were highly effective, but the other magic here is the real one is for ASCVD. There's not a benefit on heart failure. But 
Secondary outcomes were kidney outcomes, and across the board, they decrease albuminuria, GFR decline, and even late-stage CKD. And again, the heart and kidney benefits are present even in the super high-risk group who have existing CKD. This field is a little further behind in the trials, so that's why we haven't elevated GLP-1s yet to first line, but let me show you where the arrows are pointing. So this is from a meta-analysis by Naveed Sitar that was published about 16 months ago, looking at the cardiovascular outcome trials with GLP-1s. You see more than a 20% reduction, those kidney disease outcomes, um, mainly driven by albuminuria, but remember who's in the study. These are people picked for cardiovascular disease, not kidney disease. These trials only run two years. What do you have a chance to measure in people without kidney disease in two years? Albuminuria before GFR decline. And there's a, if you just look at GFR decline, it's close to statistically significant. Also, if you look at the effect of major adverse cardiovascular events, irrespective of high or low GFR, you get the, the significant reduction of about 15% in ASCVD events. But let's dive a little deeper into people who actually have CKD. So this is from a study that we did called Award 7 that um, compared dulaglutide to insulin glargine. And you can see the GFR here is much lower than in the other trials. They are coming in at 35. And the group treated with insulin, in this case, in one year study, you're going to see GFR decline because they're already heading down. And in the insulin group represented in green, you see the expected decline, but stabilization with either dose of doula, and this is just the 26 and 52 week data as bar graphs. So you see this significant reduction after one year in the insulin group that's essentially abrogated by either dose of doula glutide. This paper actually published online last week, so you are really seeing things in real time. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, work with uh, a group to uh, look at SUSTAIN-6 and PIONEER-6. These are two of the semaglutide cardiovascular outcome trials. And again, most of the people had normal kidney function, uh, but about 800 of them had a GFR between 30 and 60. And this is effect on GFR slope. And overall, you see that even after one and a half years, the people on uh, semaglutide were much more stable than those uh, on, uh, on the comparator, which was either insulin or another glucose lowering agent. But it, what was really very interesting is, again, if you go into the low GFR group, we see an even bigger differential. This is just the slope at one year. So the difference in slope is more than a mil per minute per year. And why is that exciting to people like me? Well, we know from a whole bunch of other studies, if you can show that the slope difference is more than 0.75, so this is well over that limit, this is highly predictive that the intervention is going to affect outcomes, which means kidney failure. How might the magic be happening? Really very differently than the SGLT2s. Again, you're getting the USA Today version, but just to give you an idea of why we're even now moving toward combination therapies, because they work in complementary ways. So if we go back to the glomerulus again, this is a cartoon of a glomerulus that is kind of a Kimmel-Still-Wilson glomerulus, expanded matrix, fibrosis, but reminding you that if we show the bigger picture, and I showed you the real histology earlier, that there's a lot of inflammation and fibrosis. And many of these cells aren't even intrinsic kidney cells. They're invading macrophages and T lymphocytes. Well, it turns out that GLP-1 receptors exist many places other than the pancreas, including the kidney. So they're in several types of intrinsic kidney cells, particularly endothelial cells, maybe proximal tubular cells, depends on the model. 
But they are also on the invaders. They're on macrophages and T lymphocytes. And it turns out when GLP-1 binds its receptor, it has profound anti-inflammatory effects, particularly in immune cells. And by activating cyclic AMP, it shuts down production of reactive oxygen species and the signals that drive inflammation and fibrotic mediators out of these cells. So the idea is that GLP SGLT2s are mainly hemodynamic. There may be some other effects, but that's the big thing, like ACEs and ARBs. They really work on glomerular hemodynamics. These drugs really work on inflammation and fibrosis, independent of glucose lowering. And in Award 7, the glucose levels were exactly the same. So those differences in GFR were not attributable to glycemia. So this has led us to the FLOW trial. FLOW is the first kidney disease outcome trial with a GLP-1. We're doing an interim analysis this summer. It could report as early as this summer or as late as next summer. So this is a 2023-24 uh, expectation. Um, it is semaglutide versus placebo, a classic diabetes and CKD, right? Because we're just enrolling them by GFR and albuminuria on a background of RAS blockade. And SGLT2 inhibitors are also being used in about half of these patients. So we'll find out about combination therapy. So that's the story on GLP-1s, and they, you can expect a guideline update if this trial lands like the others do. So what about finerenone? What's finerenone? It's a non-steroidal mineralocorticoid antagonist. It was studied in over 13,000 patients. This is actually the largest trial portfolio in this field of diabetes and CKD. That's a, that's a, big, that's a large number of people. Fidelio was the kidney trial, Figaro was the heart trial, but they were all enrolled based on CKD because of what I've told you. It's the highest risk group for heart disease. In fact, now a bunch of the cardiovascular trials are requiring albuminuria or low GFR, interestingly enough, because they get so many endpoints. But in the Figaro trial, they had a GFR of um, 60 on average and a UACR albuminuria of about 100 milligram per gram, whereas the Fidelio trial had a GFR of 45 and a UACR of 600. So that's why they did the trial this way, because they got the cardiovascular endpoints in the earlier stage and the kidney endpoints in the later stage, both highly positive and then meta-analyzed together in fidelity. Here's the hazards ratio for the cardiovascular outcome, mostly driven by heart failure again, 14% and kidney disease outcome 23%. And this study was conducted at a time that SGLT2 inhibitors were starting to pick up and, and five to 10% had dropped in use. And these patients got the benefit of finerin on top of SGLT2. So that's why we see with the guidelines that this drops in after SGLT2. This just published a month ago. This is the finerinone data by different levels of GFR and albuminuria, just to show that the, the benefit is the same. These are the hazards ratios across GFR and albuminuria. You can see that with higher albuminuria above 300 or lowest GFR between 25 and 45, the risk is higher, but the blue bar represents finerenone. And even in these high risk groups, they had similar benefit. So what's going on here? Because like you probably learned about aldosterone as homeostatic regulation electrolyte transport, sodium reabsorption, potassium secretion of the cortical collecting duct. Well, guess what? Their mineralocorticoid receptors are non-epithelial cells again. And it's the non-epithelial cells where we think the action uh, really is. And again, this is another one of our 
uh, cartoons, but reminding people that the kidney has a lot more than the glomerulus, and particularly in this tubulo interstitial inflammatory region, all of those same cells that are uh, affected by GLP-1 receptor antagonists, particularly, again, the invading immune cells, as well as some of the fibroblasts, uh, have mineralocorticoid receptors. And when activated, become pro-inflammatory cells. What does finerenone do? It binds the receptor. This is a nuclear receptor. And when it's attached to the receptor, transcription cannot occur. So this is really not a hemodynamic effect of a mineralocorticoid antagonist. It is an anti-inflammatory effect. So that's a lot, that's a lot, especially if you're in general internal medicine or you don't think about like heart and kidney disease all the time. So why don't we like now apply the lesson of the day to a, a real life patient. Think about like, if you go back to your clinic this morning, Dr. Porsche said, told me she's going to clinic. She might see a lady like this. So she's 75 years old, hypertension, type two diabetes. She's been hospitalized three times in four months for recurrent episodes of heart failure. She's on a pretty typical regimen with loop diuretic, beta blocker, ARB, metformin. And she's back to see you a week after hospitalization. She's short of breath again. Her blood pressure, 124 over 68, not bad. She's got some bilateral rows and she's got one plus edema uh, to mid-calf. But here are her labs. Her potassium is 5.2. Her creatinine is 1.5, but her GFR, that means a GF, and this older lady is a GFR of 34. She's got macroalbuminuria. And she, her A1C is 6.8. And uh, after she was optimized in the hospital, her ejection fraction was still 36%. So we can clinically phenotype this patient without even having to use a lot of fancy tests, right? So this is a person with type 2 diabetes, CKD, and heart failure reduced ejection fraction. Oops. So we don't have an audience response system, but we can still play with this. So what pillars of therapy can be optimized, used to optimize uh, care of this patient? So would you want to start an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven benefit? The three big ones, DAPA, CANA, or empagliflozin. You might you want to give an ARNI, sacubitril, valsartan in place of the ARB. You could also do it the old-fashioned way and add thiazide for diuretic synergy, sequential nephron blockade. Or again, we, have, we need to have urgency, right? Do you want to do more than one thing? Would you might like to do A and B? Well, actually what we did was A and B because time is of the essence here. And one of the problems that we have in this field has been therapeutic inertia. We need to have urgency about getting these therapies on board. They save lives, hearts, and kidneys, and the mortality rate is enormous. So it turns out this is actually another uh, study that I did looking at the Impagliflozin data set um, that was available in the cardiovascular outcome trials. This was pre-IMPA kidney. Uh, and glucose lowering trials, where we looked at safety in patients with low GFR, because we were just starting EMPA kidney then, and we wanted to also, you know, take a close look at the available safety data, because safety first, right? So it turns out that not only were these drugs safe across the board, we saw uh, less edema, and importantly, less hyperkalemia, which is another gift in terms of trying to manage these people, especially if we might want to use a mineralocorticoid antagonist. So um, this is a patient that I see, and um, I had the conversation with the primary care physician who was seeing her the first week post-op, and she did those two um, things. She switched her to an ARNI, 
added um, dapagliflozin in this case. So I saw her uh, four weeks later, and when we had the conversation, we didn't want to start an MRA because of the hyperkalemia, even though she had heart failure reduced ejection fraction. So when I saw her, her dyspnea was better. She still had a little bit of edema, but again, as we would expect based on the, um, the data on SGLT2 inhibitors, lowering potassium, but not causing hypokalemia, her potassium had come down nicely, 4.6. Her creatinine had gone up a little bit, GFR 31. Uh, and that dip, dip in GFR we expect with the SGLT2 inhibitors because we're reducing hyperfiltration within 30% is acceptable. Good. Her albuminuria had come down a lot, but still quite high, right? She's still super high risk based on albuminuria alone. So what is the preferred next step? Again, do you want to intensify her diuretic regimen, add a thiazide, sequential nephron bucade, increase her furosemide, start finerenone, or add a couple diuretics? Contemplate that for a moment. We started finerenone based on the fidelity data. And in fact, this is data um, that Peter Rossing published looking at the SGLT2 inhibitor use in uh, Fidelio. Again, it was a few patients uh, with drop-in use, um, but you can see without SGLT2 inhibition with finerenone, there were many more hyperkalemia events, more than double compared to placebo, 19% versus 9%. But SGLT2 inhibitor use greatly dropped both of those numbers down um, so that even in the patients who got finerenone, it went from 18 or 19% to 8%. And there were no events with potassium over six. So this is actually another big gift. SGLT2 inhibitors make it much more possible to give mineralocorticoid antagonists for heart and or kidney failure. So I'm gonna wrap up by saying like, okay, so now you're back to clinic again. like. This is still a lot, right? So one of the things that we did in the KDGO guidelines was publish this heat map that risk stratifies people by albuminuria and, and GFR. And this is a really useful thing to have in your clinic because anybody in the red boxes needs intensive treatment and certainly from primary care, but this is probably a person who also ought to start seeing their nephrologist and or cardiologist again because of the risks and the kind of co-management that that patient that I presented to you illustrated where it's all, it's all of our jobs, but I think we need to support each other in getting the job done based on the complexity of these patients and the frequency with which they need to be seen. Um, so you can see that um, we recommend screening for everybody, but really once you get into the yellow or orange boxes, I think we're into, we're into treatment, initiating those guideline-directed medical therapies and certainly very appropriate, I think, for most primary care physicians. I think once you're in the red or dark red boxes, that's where um, we would recommend that specialties get involved because some of the complexities, like for example, management of hyperkalemia and other sorts of issues uh, are often uh, best co-managed. But how are we doing in practice? This is back to our registry, including Providence patients. Now this paper was published in 2019 with data through 2017. And even though we've recommended albuminuria monitoring in CKD for over 20 years, in all CKD patients, it only happened about 15% of the time. And even in the highest risk groups, these cardiometabolic patients with diabetes, and hypertension, we only did it 20% of the time. 
And then look at how we did on guideline-directed medical therapy. So this is data. We go, we go back to 2006 because that's when the EHRs were just um, being initiated at Providence and UCLA. And you can see that while um, ACE and ARB use increased over these successive time periods, we still, by as late as 2017, we're only using them 25% of the time uh, in patients with diabetes, seeking and hypertension, the hardest, most compelling indication for these agents. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but it's not just here. This is from the Optum database, looking at a national data set on um, GLP-1 and, uh, and SGLT-2 inhibitor use. GLP-1s are orange, SGLT-2 yellow, and they're juxtaposed now against some of these major trials that I mentioned to you. And after 2019, we did see an uptick, but we're still less than 15%. Part of the problem, though, is drug prices. So this is from a paper that we wrote on the Diabetic Kidney Disease Collaborative Task Force about overcoming barriers to getting optimal care. And this is the 30-day retail supply for SGLT2s and GLP1s in the U.S. And even in people who are insured, it's there's still several hundred dollars a month. And like that lady that I presented to you, how many meds do you think she's on? It's 15, okay? Like, you can't pay this much for a single medicine. And I know you're going to have a, a lecture on de-prescribing, so maybe some of that other stuff could go up. These are the life-saving therapies. But if you juxtapose these against other countries, we're in this country, we're still paying much more, especially compared to Canada, which is, you know, our neighbor next door, right? And I don't know about you, but my patients go up to Canada to get these medicines. Or you could even get them from a mail-away pharmacy. This is actually now a more contemporary look of guideline-directed medical therapy. Again, in our registry, your patients are in here and so are mine, this is us, um, looking at uh, SGLT2 inhibitor use and ASR abuse. So first off, at ASR abuse, congratulations, we got better after 2017. In this group who had diabetes and CKD, albuminuria, low GFR, or both. I don't know the cause, right? But probably a lot of DKD. Any case, we got to 70%. However, if we said after 90 days, were they still on the medicine? It drops off 40%. We look at the predictors of use versus non-use. Well, the strongest predictor of non-use is not having commercial insurance. And actually Providence did worse than UCLA Health. This was the, this was the biggest difference. Uh, we see no difference by race if we control for insurance and health system although we still do see a disparity in women getting these agents less frequently. If we look at SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, baseline was only 6%, but we still see a drop off after 90 days. Again, predictors of not using these therapies are non-commercial insurance and being cared for at Providence. And hospitalization, now that makes sense to me because we do stop these for six days. The race disparity goes away when we control for health system and insurance. And again, we see a sex disparity. Women are less likely to get these. This paper is actually under review at the Annals of Internal Medicine with Suzanne Nicholas from UCLA as the first author. So we still have a lot of work to do because we have amazing therapies, but people aren't getting them. They aren't getting them often enough. So one of the things that we've addressed in the guidelines is the importance of team care, because the other thing I know, I go to clinic too, you're thinking like, how am I gonna do that? Like I got the asthma guidelines last week and now I gotta do this and you got 15 minutes and 20 medicines. You know, I, we really have emphasized the importance of team care. So really we talk about not only specialties, so that's like cardiology, endocrinology, primary care, 
nephrology, but also across disciplines are not only physicians, but nurses, pharmacists in particular can do a lot of medication management very effectively. And other people who are part of the healthcare team and are really trying to walk the talk in terms of guideline harmonization. I described, and in fact, like I said, both the ADA and KDGO have issued a joint consensus statement, really a call to action to do this type of care. Multidisciplinary education, so we need to get this message out again, not only to our physicians, but all of the team and really working on multidisciplinary models so that we can get the job done. Um, we're contemplating, uh, we actually are waiting to hear on a PCORI grant that would uh, move our, this, this care, this guideline directed care for diabetes and CKD into a pharmacy based program, not unlike the anticoagulation clinics with prescriptions and troubleshooting by specialists and primary care physicians in a case conference format. But we've got to look at, at how to get this done, but also manage large numbers of patients. And then that's important too, in terms of patient self-management and patient education. Uh, a lot, patients can do a lot for themselves too, <clears throat> especially in terms of maintaining therapies. And then again, out, out of the ASN, we've really talked about, we've looked at this even more broadly, especially at the healthcare system and payer level to implement new models of care and payment models so that we really can deliver this care so the take-home points are that SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and a non-steroidal MRA to date, there's just one, uh, finerenone, along with an ACER, are codified as guideline-directed medical therapy. And the outcomes we're interested in modifying are survival, heart, and kidney benefits. But lack of detection, high drug prices, and poor care coordination are critical barriers to implementation. And we really do need to focus now on implementation. Uh, the time is now, this is a pivot, it's a moment in medicine, not just in any specialty. Again, these are breakthrough therapies that unlike anything we've seen in decades and across these fields. And we do need teams and we need to educate and work together. Uh, and um, we realize that, you know, at the individual practice level, it's hard to do it all by yourself. We need system support. And this includes payers and federal agencies that will uh, allow us to deliver this care. And then finally, if you're interested, out of the Diabetic Kidney Disease Collaborative Task Force, we've developed an educational module. It's free. You can use your phone uh, and link to the module, um, or you can just go on the website. You don't have to be a member. It's free, um, and it is really focused on the patient journey and the primary care physician to help you sort of get through and navigate this complex system of care. But, you know, you've done much more complicated things. I know you can do this and thank you and uh, look forward to hearing your questions and comments. Wow, thank you, Dr. Tuttle, um, for a tremendous amount of information and insight there. We have several questions online, and perhaps I'll glance around the room and, and see if we want to start with a question here in the auditorium. Well, that was great. Um, I'm so glad you covered both the past pathophysiology and then got into the cost barriers that we're facing. So since Providence is such a huge system now, um, are you, do you have power with the health plan to get some of these things covered? I mean, it just it's like a no brainer. And I wonder if something like Kaiser, which is a closed system, has already done that. Yes. Oh, thanks for asking that question. You know, um, 
this is a brave new world. I mean, this is really an unprecedented time. And I have to tell you that, you know, the data I'm showing you, some of it was even published as recently as a month ago. So it's, it's, it's rapidly moving. But, you know, what we've focused on and what we typically do in, in clinical and translational research and clinical trials is, you know, complete the trial, publish the paper in the New England and move on to the next thing. We need we we haven't we haven't closed the loop. So, what I can tell you is on the it. I, I think with her at the health system level, what I know because I work in Providence too clinically, is it's going to have to be paid for, because what's paid for and what's measured is what gets done, and that means it has to walk back to health policy. So this group out of ASN and the ADA are working very closely with Health and Human Services. I, I've met with Rachel Levine, who's the deputy director and really pretty much runs the show there. And not just me, but several of us. She's very interested in um, working at the policy level, but that, you know, it takes some time. Um, but it'll probably start with Medicare. Um, and like most things, then if there's policy for Medicare coverage, um, what we're really looking at is probably, I know you've heard it so many times, population health, but where, you know, there's a payment for this patient and you assume the cost of the heart failure and kidney failure unless you prevent it. That's the direction it's going to have to go. And I will tell you, Intermountain Health has already done this because they hired one of my colleagues as the first chief kidney health officer of Intermountain Health. And his job is to do exactly this. And Intermountain Health has a health plan like Providence. And Intermountain Health is covering it. So I guess that gives me hope that others might. Great, thank you. Um, piggybacking on the idea of cost and things to do in the interim, a couple of questions about whether spironolactone mm. can be used as an alternative to finerenone if there's similar benefit, um, particularly given cost barriers. Yeah, and the answer is it depends. <laughs> okay, so if you're treating conventional heart failure reduced ejection fraction, the data is there. The problem is the hyperkalemia. And even in the heart failure trials, this was a huge issue. Like 25% of people could not take spironolactone because of hyperkalemia. If you talk about people with CKD, which is a lot, especially if you bother to measure GFR and albuminuria, you will find out, like I said, that it's many more people than we than you knew because if you don't test it, you don't know. Um, we only have the data on finerenone for kidney disease outcomes. And the other thing about finerenone, and I didn't show you this, is there have been head-to-head -head studies with spironolactone. And because the drug works quite differently and has this targeted effect that's more anti-inflammatory than effect on electrolyte transport, we have much less hyperkalemia with finerenone. So, you know, ideally we would use finerenone. I suppose if it's just completely out of reach and you don't have a potassium problem, it has been shown to reduce proteinuria, which you could argue is a biomarker, but we don't really have the data. So I would say I prefer to use finerenone in CKD or in patients with hyperkalemia, um, but I think that's probably a clinical decision and just understand we don't have the data and there's a bigger potassium risk, which is a big risk. Thank you. Again, thank you. It's lovely to see a, a new world evolving. And will you just say it one more time with as much clarity as possible, even if there's no hypertension, but there's kidney disease and diabetes, I can choose SGLT2 inhibitors first 
even though they were studied mostly in people that did have hypertension and were on an ACE or an ARB. Yeah, and in fact, there's no blood, I mean, there's maybe a two, it depends, again, depends on the study, but we don't see more than a two or three millimeter blood pressure change. And this, we're, this is, this is independent, this of hypertension or hyperglycemia. In fact, in the guidelines, we intentionally use the term organ protective therapy. And we said organ because it's heart and kidney. So you're, so to quote George Backras, these are glucose, these, these, these are heart and kidney protective agents with a glucose lowering side effect and almost no effect on blood pressure. And this is independent of blood pressure glucose. And it's because they directly target these mechanisms inside these organs. The heart effect of SGLT2 is largely because the kidneys get better. And I think that's really interesting. It really unlocks how important the kidney is in heart failure. And that paper, there's, you can have my slides on that. Let me go back to it. Um, Eugene Braunwald just wrote a review in the New England that published like nine months ago. This one, let's see. It's really good. I mean, he's still running with all jets and he goes through all of this very eloquently. And, and this is his figure. I have to say that he adapted this figure from our paper. I was proud of that, but I was happy to give him permission. But this really goes through how he goes through the physiology of how the kidney impacts heart failure and how we completely, well, maybe not completely, in a very effective way, we break, we break this cycle. So cool. Well, we have an online question that perhaps builds even further upon that. Given all those benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors, has anyone looked at these drugs as an upstream adjuvant therapy for hypertension in the hope of lowering the incidence of hypertension-related CKD and CHF? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So a couple of things. So first off, in the in the early, now I'm talking about 2018 studies as early, in the early uh, cardiovascular outcome trials, they enrolled people who either had atherosclerotic disease at that point, or they were people with type 2 diabetes who had risk factors. In those studies, they showed that people with diabetes were less likely to have this is where I started to get incident CKD or incident heart failure, where it starts. So yes. Then with regard to the question about non-diabetic people, and I'm going to just say non-diabetic people because they can have hypertension or not. We now have five trials, three, no, no, six. There are four heart failure trials. There's emperor preserved, emperor reduced. That's reduced ejection fraction, preserved ejection fraction. There's DAPA heart failure, which was reduced ejection fraction, and deliver, which was either preserved ejection fraction or moderately reduced ejection fraction. And then we have DAPA CKD and EMPA kidney, all of whom had one third to one half of people without diabetes. Now they had prevalent heart failure or CKD, but the benefits on heart failure and kidney are there in the non-diabetic population. So the, it's only people with heart failure and CKD without diabetes who've been studied. But, you know, I think it's pretty clear that that's, you're going to see the heart failure guidelines have already been updated to say anybody with heart failure now. 
irrespective of injection fraction or diabetes. IMPA kidney literally published less than three months ago, but you're going to see the CKD. We, I'm on the diabetes and CKD guideline work group. There's a separate sort of CKD that's not diabetes, a different work group. They're going to update that. So I think you're now seeing these agents as their heart and kidney protective therapies, period. And in IMPA kidney, even non-albuminuric people without diabetes. So that means like people with IgA nephropathy, which might not be your wheelhouse in primary care. We see a lot of that in nephrology and we've had no treatments for IgA. Thank you. I think um, I will pair a comment and questions related to health disparities mm. um, to end the hour here from some comments and questions online. Early in your uh, talk, you referenced uh, racial disparity and incident CKD. And the question is here, how much of the racial disparity is intrinsic to ethnic predisposition to the disease versus other medical issues such as obesity, for example, um, which is very prevalent in several of these groups? In other words, are we missing an opportunity to prevent CKD by better addressing other predisposing illness? And the second part to this is concern about increased disparities in care given the cost of these medications. Yeah, great point. I think, you know, one of the really important messages out of this healthcare system and that New England Journal paper is we've got huge disparities in who gets CKD. And, and what I will say up front is I don't think it's genetic. Uh, I, I really think that it's largely social determinants of health and things like obesity roll up to social determinants of health. And then at the end of my presentation, the paper that we presented at ASN Kidney Week that's currently under review, what we clearly showed is like, if you, if you then say, um, the idea of identifying who gets disease is to identify people early so we have the chance to intervene, right? So then if we look at our data on the SGLT2 and the ACE ARBs, by race and ethnicity, but we control for insurance status and type of healthcare system, we don't have any more racial disparity. So that basically speaks to this question. It's about where you live and what kind of healthcare you get, who gets treated. And I agree, we should address other social determinants like, you know, obesity and uh, other things that come with unfavorable life experience. It's also hypertension, right? Especially in these populations. Um, and that's probably not genetic either. It's related to diet and stress, frankly. So, but it's, it's good because when you identify them, it gives you a chance to think about what you can do to make it better. If you don't know it's there, if you don't see it, you're not good. That's part of having your blinders on. And I think that's why the New England took the paper because they were, that's, they wanted us to write more about that than anything else, which we did. I mean, but they, you know, and, and the, one of the benefits of our healthcare system is being so large, we, we had a chance to look at some groups, especially like the uh, Hawaiian and Pacific Islander groups. You know, you have to have a large population to have enough people to generate those estimates, and our healthcare system does, especially being on the West Coast. But, you know, some of those groups have, you know, just really been under the radar. And now, you know, this really elevates an area where we need to take a closer look at what we're doing and how we're delivering care. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Tuttle. It is an honor to have our patients be a small part of these data sets. Thank you for your ongoing work and for coming to teach us today. My pleasure. Thank you.